Riverside. Welcome back. Backside Ground Balls, episode six, seven? Six. Dude, six. Episode six. Trev, how are you? Good. How was your weekend? It was good, man. Uh, family wedding in York, Pennsylvania this weekend. So uh, the wife and I left Friday right after work, uh, headed up, uh, you know, had the whole welcome drinks thing Friday mm-hmm. night wedding yesterday got back uh this morning it was a good time it was a long weekend but i'm pretty i'm pretty burnt out um, pretty smoked but well yeah thank god we yeah. uh we want a podcast for a living so we're grinding here yeah so we'll do a little late sunday night but i'll tell you what venue was venue was pretty sick and yeah like, i think of i don't know if anybody's familiar with you work pennsylvania like not you know I don't want to say anything too mean, but not the, the you know, a destination. If you're not from York, it's interesting to go to a wedding of two people who also aren't from York. Like, right? they, they, they're from New York, the couple who got married. And so it was like, why are they getting married in York, Pennsylvania? The venue was really nice. Yeah. And no free ads. Luckily, I don't know the uh, the name of the venue, so I don't even yeah. You know, I don't know how to handle those details, but it was good. It was good. It was a good time. It was good to see family, um, especially since the move's coming up here soon. So probably won't see a lot of those people for a good while. So yeah. some good and to bad Fiji to that, for, right? Yeah, Fiji. some good and bad for sure. Yeah, they're going to Fiji for two and a half weeks. That's awesome. Here, here you go. So I was talking to the groom at the cocktail party. And, you know, I was asking him about Fiji and stuff. And, uh, I, you know, what are you guys going to do? You just going to sit on the beach? You're going to do exploring? Because they're, they're, they're kind of adventurous. They travel all the time. And he was like, yeah, we're going to do some surfing, you know, a bunch of hikes. And we're going to go diving. And I was like, oh, okay. I said, that's, like, pretty serious. We can go diving. He's like, yeah, they have, like, this great reef you can dive off of in Fiji, I guess. He's like, we're diving with sharks. Hmm. I said, I'm sorry, you're what? I said, you're going down in the cage? He's like, no, like, there's free swimming around. I said, well, what kind of sharks are they? He said they're bull sharks and tiger sharks. I said, look, I don't know much about marine biology, but I'm pretty sure bull sharks and tiger sharks are pretty aggressive. Like, I would never. Like, that's not something no. I would. I yeah, have zero no. interest in that. No, not at all. Like, I don't even know if I'd go down in one of those cages. Eh, maybe. Maybe in the cage. I mean, I, I get a little gun shy when I step on a seashell walking out. Like, <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> No, seriously. Like, I don't know if I want to just be free diving with sharks swimming around me. Because then, like, then, then you have that moment of, like, oh, shit, what am I doing? You start, like, swimming away, like, quickly or something. And then you're just, like, basically putting a, a sign around your neck that says, I'm prey. Like, here, snack yeah. time. They can, <laughs> they can smell it. They can smell your weakness yeah. of, of fear. And you're just <laughs> trying to get away. And, they, like, they're like, oh. And then you're wearing the black scuba suit. And you're basically a seal at that point. They're right. Correct. Get, yeah. Get, get, a, get a chunk of some blubber off of you. Next thing you know, you got one leg. Congrats yeah. on the wedding. Thank God you got yeah. to enjoy it in Fiji. Sick honeymoon. That's what I, I – yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. But Fiji would be pretty cool. I th- I, it's also like Fiji it takes like a whole day to get there. Oh, sure. Long flight. That's, that's a long yeah, flight. Yeah, it's out there. 
I mean, it's it's twenty to get to Australia. Yeah, and they're they're the, they're the type of couple like over COVID they they just went for like a month and a half to Hawaii, worked remotely in that's, Hawaii. That's like that's legit. That's legit. Yeah. Hawaii's good. Yeah. Hawaii's a good place. Yeah, they're they're like Ivy times. Ivy Ivy League graduated, so they're they're doing well. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful way. They, yeah, they do. It was a really good time. Yeah. Bartenders that's were good. so so. DJ was pretty good. DJ was pretty. They went DJ. <laughs> Yeah, they went DJ pretty good. No line dances. It was interesting. Now you give me like one line dance, you know? It was good. Yeah. Some good. All the small things. I was celebrating a, a Colorado Avalanche uh, Stanley Cup, singing all the, all the small things. Blink 182. Um, yeah. Let's get into it. Uh, look, I, I think I say this every show another good weekend, another good weekend of baseball. Um, we had talked on Thursday night, some big series. The Mets took two or three from the Phillies. Um, re- really good series until today, which kind of got away from the Phillies today. Um, th- you know, they got beat by the Mets game in the sense that the Mets were just putting balls in play against Wheeler, weren't striking out. And it was, you know, they kind of, they won handedly six nothing. But, you know, they, they, DeGrom beats Nola one nothing on Saturday night. Nola goes eight innings, um, gives up a run in the first, blanks him from there. Uh, so on the losing end as a road team, completely. I thought game. Philly fans um, says Aaron Nola can't pitch in big games. I think they do say that. I believe <laughs> they do say that. I, the funny thing is, is like <laughs> the funny thing when when you when you hear people say that is, is what big games has Aaron Nola pitched in? Yeah, I guess in twenty twenty they needed they needed to win like in last year a little bit. Like they needed to win a couple games in twenty twenty of like their last five. I think they need to win like two, and they won one. I think he lost mm-hmm. maybe once or twice in that stretch, but like he hasn't really pitched in any big games. No, not at all. But the <laughs> most Aaron Nola thing to happen is throwing your best game and what people would deem a big game and just having Jacob DeGrom be your opponent yeah. and just go yeah. be unhittable for six innings. Yeah. And the Mets did what the Mets did. And, you know, the Phillies won, won the Scherzer game um, yes. Friday night. Ranger Suarez and Scherzer dealt. I mean, if it was a tight series, it was a really good series. You can tell that the Phillies are definitely still a couple steps behind the Mets, but they're definitely better than they've been. You know, they they're playing. They you know they played with them. It, it, it was a really good series, and you know, New York goes to Philly for four this weekend, so that'll be fun to watch. Um, Dodgers continue to a roll. They had their win streak snap today, but they took two or three from Kansas City. Um, just dominant. Brave sweep the Marlins in four. Astros continue to handle the A's. Did you see Sky Bolt throw up, by the way? Yeah. What? I was just having a good good night on the town the night before, I guess. What What was that? I mean, were they in Houston or Oakland? Houston. I was going to say, if they were in Oakland, I would not be shocked if Oakland's spread for game day was enough to throw up because they're, they're that cheap. It's like two week old. It's from the it's from yeah. the last homestand. They just ran it back out. It's like eating the eggs at a Comfort Inn in some in some small town when you're playing Division some D, Three some baseball. Division, yeah, yeah, some D two or D three college town hotel breakfast yep. burrito. Yeah, mm-hmm. you got a double header. <laughs> that was where we, that's we, actually did you know that's where intermittent fasting started i would yes, for that reason. yes i think we were all the case studies of it 
where it's just like, I'm just not eating. How much caffeine can I put down to quell my hunger for this doubleheader day in Hickory, North Carolina? Caffeine and dip. How much, how yeah, much can I get right. through? Right. And maybe some Adderall. Like, what can I do here to just anything but to have to eat another Uncrustable from the bus? Yeah. Oh, my God. Anything. Anything and then like I, that. The, the, small school baseball is the epitome of just like bad diet. It's like a half, it's like a four hour old four inch Wawa sub between a double header with a Red Bull. And that's about all. The mayo has like, the mayo is growing things because it's been sitting in in your bag for four hours. You're frustrated at your mom for getting mayo on it when she knew you weren't going to be able to eat it until 3.30. (laughs) She picked it up at 9.15. Another bag of planters, you know, sea salt and cracked pepper cashews just to hold you over because you can't think about printing another ticket at the Wawa cashier of an Italian sub that you know is going to be soggy. Bread's just falling apart in your hands. (laughs) Yeah, thank God Coach pulled into Wawa at 9.15 for me to pick up a hoagie. Something that I'm not going to eat till 4.30. Hey, if we're lucky, we'll have Chipotle again for the 13th night, too, after this doubleheader. I don't know how many more pinto beans my my stomach can digest. Yeah, I mean, at this point, nobody's going to find out, but this year, whenever we would stop at Chipotle, I would use the receipt for my points, and I have free Chipotle points for like 25 trips. Oh, that's the college baseball hack. Like, that's it if you're coaching college baseball. Like, our friend of the program, Matt Trait, hitting coach at Goldie, like, I can't imagine how many free Chick-fil-A meals he's fed his family just from the points from road trips. Yeah. Just like, he's always like, let me, let me scan in when we, he always said to skip, skip, let me scan in when we get there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Cause here comes a $400 Chick-fil-A order. (laughs) You get like 13,000 points. He's going to be driving around in like a Chick-fil-A wrapped brand new car. (laughs) (laughs) At 4 million points, you get a free Chick-fil-A catering. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, you can't tell we're a little loopy tonight. <laughs> anyway, so Sky Bowl, I don't know what that was. I like did he swallow did, did he swallow his dip? Like did Maybe. he make that's a play a, and swallow his dip? Like that had to be Maybe. it. It had to be. Like he just like got that. it. Like there's a there's another D2 situation. This kid <laughs> hasn't played with a dip in before. <laughs> he just gutted half the freshman on the end of the bench just gutted half their coat mint long cut head in the trash can for the next three and a half innings. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> We've all, we've all seen it. <laughs> One too many. I used to say, I'll never forget. I'm going to throw some people. I won't name any names here, but I'll never forget. We were at uh, Notre Dame College in, in, in Euclid, Ohio, when I was playing. These are my playing days. Um, and they put, you know, everybody, you know, bags and shoes underneath the bench uh, in the dugout. And I remember I went in there to get something and I looked underneath the bench and there was like probably like eight pairs of turfs lined up underneath mm-hmm. you know, everybody's turfs underneath with it and like eight, everybody in the left shoe had coat mint long cut and in the right shoe had their prescription vivance or adderall and i was like if this doesn't describe this team i don't know what does 
my god. He's such a crackhead. I played with a kid who would crush it up and rub it on his gums. Longer, longer <laughs> effect. Hits quicker and lasts longer. It was like, dude, you're pretty much a crack addict, dude. Yeah, you're. Yeah. It's that's what happens a, that's when you have right to catch there. both ends of a doubleheader. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. The wear and pretty sure I saw that kid puking. It. And that's that's the kid that I'm pretty sure I've seen puking in the dugout game two. Yeah, I can't imagine. He's, he's halfway through the the 15 hour mountain east ride home for the, the for the local series that you guys had the local series, right in division that's yeah, in division in, in division 15 hours west virginia college baseball right there and he's finally coming down from his vivance peak <laughs> that he rubbed like, on his hasn't gums. eaten in three days and he's just <laughs> like we left oh. he hasn't Good eaten night. since shepherdstown <laughs> And we're getting on the bus on Wednesday yeah. to head to Wise, Wise, Virginia, which is another 14 and a half hours. Make sure you go to class tomorrow morning. Yeah, I got it, Skip. Yeah. Got oh, it. Yeah. man. Well, there's your – and that's about all I have on the Astros A's this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good night. Um uh, the other big series that we had talked about over the weekend, the Cardinals and Brewers, Cards take two or three, another playoff-type series. So that's what's fun when you start to get to the end of the year, when you see these series. You want these series to kind of start to have those tight game feelings. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, both the Braves and Mets uh, a couple weekends ago, and then this weekend, Phillies, Mets, and then the Cardinals and Brewers was huge. Um, just really good games and tight. Uh, Albert goes deep twice today, which is just so cool to see him still be able to, to, to run into him every once in a while. Cause I think we're, we've gotten to the point where we've talked about how great Albert pool holes is, is for so long. And he was with the angels for, and kind of went dormant there that like people kind of are starting to almost forget. Like we've talked about it so much that we're starting to forget just how good he was with, with St. Louis. Like his yeah. numbers used to be crazy. I mean, it's crazy. Insane. Um, you're right. Like, people do seem to forget. I mean, sneaky mashing against lefties this year. Like, really mashing, mashing against, against lefties, lefties this, year. this year. And obviously, he took Ashby deep today, and, and that's a, another lefty. And whatever he's doing against lefties, whether it's workload management, that's kind of keeping him fresh and able to tap into that power that he still has. I mean, he showed it in the home run derby, but. I mean, it's it's impressive. It's kind of almost one. Him and Wayno are almost those feel good stories at this point that you just kind of chalk up to the fact that their careers ended. A la David Ortiz, pretty much going on an MVP like yeah. season to finish out his career. I mean, that was insane what he did that year. I know that obviously he was just inducted to the Hall of Fame, and they were talking about his numbers, and it was just like, dude, he he slugged six hundred and last year in the big unbelievable. Like, that's unreal. And I mean, Albert's a little older, obviously. He's a little bit more worn down and kind of a shell of the player he once was. But, you know, overall, I mean, that's that's an impressive what he's done against lefties this year. Yeah. I mean, he's he's it, he, you just see it sometimes. He takes those swings and you're like, I remember that swing. Like, it just looks like the old him. And he obviously just doesn't move as well in the box, and the bat speed isn't quite the same. But, I mean, he's still just so strong that when he when he finds barrel and against lefties, like you said, he sees a little better. Nothing's really spinning away from him. Um, he can crush, and it's awesome. Um, 
Rays took two or three from the Orioles, uh, and they're battling for that last wild card spot in the, you know, they're jockeying in the AL. That wild card race is just a bunch of teams, you know, muddled up there between Minnesota, Baltimore, Tampa, Seattle, and Toronto. Um, because in the AL Central, the division no one really cares or talks about ever. Um, Cleveland now has a two and a half game lead on Minnesota. They've been super hot since the deadline. Um, so let's get into a little bit of uh, Max Muncy. Um, because I know that's something that me and you've been watching. You noticed uh, last week that he's made some changes. It went a little bit viral on Twitter because he's doing something super unique. But Max Muncy, his weighted expected on his expected WOBA, sorry, in the last fifty plate appearances is insane. He's on fire. He's up to one eighty nine all of a sudden. He's mashing baseballs. He had four hits Saturday. Um, Brady Singer kind of shoved today, so he was over, but still had two walks. And he's just been unbelievable of late. It was like a guy mm-hmm. who was dead, was wasn't doing anything, and then just has caught fire. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I just found out this week was the fact that his elbow injury didn't allow him to train at all this offseason. And when you start to consider that, it all kind of starts to add up that like now he's starting to look like the hitter he once was. I mean, as early as a year ago, he was talked about as, I mean, he has a great eye. He doesn't chase. You see his walk percentages this year and his chase rate. He's literally the best in baseball. He's walking at a 16% clip and he was struggling this year. Like put in a perspective, like that guy who's not the same feared hitter he was a year ago is still walking at a 16% clip. Like you'd think pitchers would want to attack him when he was scuffling the way he was, but you know, he's still getting his walks and he's still getting on base. So, you know, I mean, from a, from a batted ball profile standpoint, I mean, his batting average isn't what it could be or what it has been over the past couple of years. But I mean, what he's doing right now is he's finally got it going. I'm sure his body's starting to feel like it should. He's starting to feel strong and and ready to, to kind of take on the wear and tear because when you don't lift for that long and you don't swing the bat, I mean, the big league game moves fast. And, you know, when you're not at your peak physically or you're not at your peak with your timing or anything, and and that's kind of where, where we'll go with this is in terms of timing and, you know, it takes a while. I mean, when you're seeing 98 with sink and 98 with spin and, and 94 mile per hour sliders and change ups that move 15 inches and one day you're facing a heavy sinker baller, next thing day you see a split finger, which are gross. And, you know, it's hard to get your timing down at that level, even for the best players in baseball. And it was very surprising to see him hitting a buck 50 for so long. And now it's starting to seem like you know, we're going to blink again. He's going to be hitting 225 with 25 homers, putting up a, a Max Muncy-like season. Yeah, and I think the timing thing, right, that's what I always think about when you can't train in the offseason. Like, just to, um, trying to get ready to prepare to see 96-plus every single day, just what you have to do. Like, it's so many reps to get used to that again because that's freakish. The way these guys, and especially someone like Muncy, who a lot of their game is seeing pitches, right, and controlling yeah. the zone. And if you're going to be a player like that, you have to be so dialed in with your eyes and have had so many reps and so many swings to be able to have the muscle ability and the body movement and the, the awareness to be able to make those swing decisions when you're seeing something come at come at you so 
quick, right? And you only have a fraction of a second to make up your mind. So then if you're going to do any damage when it is yes, 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 you better have had a bunch of reps and you better be healthy in order to do it. Because if you're going to be someone who controls the zone and isn't a free swinger, you know, and you're, and you're going off your reaction, well, you better have been able to see it all off season and train for it and get ready for it. So definitely with the timing, it makes sense. Now, the thing that went viral, right, is in the box, he's starting to do something that I don't think I've ever really seen anyone at the big league level do, right? You see the drill all the time in the cage. Um, if you're around it, you know, we had a bunch of guys <clears throat> in the cages who would do the, the step back drill, right. And even pitchers yeah. do, you know, so many different variations of a step back drill. You're seeing him do it in game where he's step, he's taking a, a full half, a half step back as his load into his swing. So um, obviously I guess my question is first, before we talk about what that could be doing for him is, is, how do you go about implementing something like that in the middle of a season when you're talking about facing, you know, cause that's an adjustment that you would take some time, I would imagine. So how do you go about doing that in the middle of a season when you're getting ready to face major league pitching every day? When you play for the Dodgers, it's about it. Yeah. And, and you know, we can joke and laugh about how deep they are, but the reality of it is they're so good that they're hit and, their player development is so good. I mean, on the minor league system and at the professional level, they are so good at what they do that they trust the work that they're putting in enough to implement that in the middle of the season. I mean, you are okay in that lineup with having a guy who is, you know, one of the top 10 to 15% of MLB hitters um, over the last couple of years, just scuffling through a stretch because you know that long-term it's going to be the fix to what could be his problem. And when you're the Los Angeles Dodgers and you trust the work you do and you trust the depth that you have, you can just have Max Muncy kind of out there taking it on the chin, kind of envisioning that this is going to be the long-term outlook. And you can kind of see that they're doing the same thing with Joey Gallo right now. It's like, you know, he's starting to piece together knocks here and there. He's starting to get walks and he's starting not to chase and he's starting to not get grip the bat too tight. It's because the Dodgers can pencil him in against righties every day and not miss a beat. He could go over four with four punch outs and look stupid and they do not miss a beat because somebody in that lineup, whether it's Cody Bellinger having one good game every week, whether it's Chris Taylor coming off the IL, whether it's Betts, Freeman, Turner doing their thing every day, Will Smith is Mr. Consistency. You're just able to sit there and do that. I mean, I would never imagine implementing that. I mean, I would have a tough right. time to do it and to kind of tell like, you know, like it's, a, it's one of those things where it's, you know, kind of regression before the ultimate huge leap. And, and there's always those tug and pull that you have with hitters and in season, and you try not to make those adjustments in season. And myself as a hitting coach, I prided myself on not making, you know, major mechanical changes in, in season when guys are trying to get what I would call quote unquote game ready. You know, every day we spent was to get game ready. Um, and you talked about Max Muncy missing that time frame and, you know, you can you can definitely train to get game ready all all winter, and it's going to set you apart when you get in the spring. So, you know, you talk about the reps that he missed in the off season, but you know, it's tough to kind of to swallow your pride for Max Muncy and really be able to evaluate yourself and evaluate the situation and trust your hitting coaches to make that change when every day you're prepping to hit ninety eight, ninety nine, and with movement. You think a little bit of, of putting in something like that, making that big of a mechanical adjustment in the middle of the season. One, you have a little bit 
when you play in 162 games, you can't really just be like, okay, it's the start of spring training, go. And whatever I have, I have. Yeah. You know, you're playing for six months, you're going to have to make mechanical adjustments, especially if you start to deal with something, you know, physically where your body changes. You know, we talked about this on the pitching side. Offensively, too, if your body's like changing because you're starting to get beat down or something from playing every day, you might have to. But <clears throat> I guess my thing is, is to make that kind of change is that. Is that like a last ditch effort? Or were we at a point where Muncie's like, I'm hitting 150. Like this, I'm, I'm, when I do this drill in the cage, I'm on time and everything feels better. Like, am I, this is just going to be something that I'm going to do? I'd say it's probably a mix of both. I think the point you made is kind of what I think about with the body and just understanding how the body moves and, you know, like, we, we know he didn't lift all off season. We know the elbow injury might've taken away some, some rotational acceleration and, and bat speed from that regard as, you know, your elbows aren't really active, but you know, you're a little weaker in the upper body. That's going to naturally kind of decrease the power output you're allowed to put out there. And so I wonder if it's just something of that nature, just trying to engage his backside a little bit more. Um, even if you're just milking every ounce of potential out of that body and out of that backside, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about. But like you said, I mean, nowadays we have, you know, it's not just straight flippies and T work, you know, you're able to get in there off a of 95, 96, 97 off a of pitching machine and you can put two out there and you can die. I mean, nowadays they have pitching machines where you can dial in pitch sequences of the spin rates of the pitchers you're going to face. And like you said, I mean, it's something so small that if he was just in there working on it and he felt good. It's not like he's just pulling it out of left field and right, like, you know, right. like, he's I'm, clearly I'm been doing it. it. Yeah. It didn't. And, and it's, it probably took a second, but it clicked. No doubt. And so is it, do you think it's more of a timing thing or, or cause when I see it and, and when I think about just doing a step back drill in general, right. It's for sequencing, whether you're talking about sequencing the swing or sequencing delivery on the mound when you do a step back drill, right? Because you want to be connected on the backside, whether you're doing a throw off of it or a swing off of it. So do you think that's it's a feel thing? Like I'm losing my backside so much and that's a part of why I'm struggling. So this is – I know I get more connected and I'm using the ground better and more efficiently when I do the step back in the cage. So that's why he's doing it out there. Or do you think it's just solely timing? I think the way he does it – and again, I, I haven't, there's not enough, like you only see the side angle of the highlights, right? We don't have access to every yeah. side angle that he has, like right. they probably do at that level. But the way he does it makes me think it's engaging the ground and using, mm-hmm. being able to get in sequence because it's not, you know, one of the things that I talk about, and you watch Nolan Arenado hit, right? Nolan Arenado is kind of the only one that's similar. He almost has happy feet in the box. Right. But to me, that was, and this is something that I used when I played, this is something I've taught, is utilizing, you know, it's a song and dance, right? You're dancing with the pitcher as a hitter. And that's why I teach a lot of guys that struggle. Like, you can't be a statue in the box, right? So a lot of guys used to, and obviously we're on podcast form, so Dan can kind of see me rocking back and forth, but almost implementing your breathing and a movement of your body because when that pitcher gets to the point where you need where he separates and you need to get your separation at the same time in that song and dance when you're flat-footed and stiff it's a lot harder to get going 
right? But when you can kind of implement something where you're kind of almost dancing with the pitcher and you get to the point where you're, you're even using your breathing and every time you move, it's a, and you're slowing the game down from that nature. That's what I think Nolan Arenado does, right? He's dancing with the pitcher. Right. Where Max Muncy's is different is there's not a ton of, like, it's not like he's going, taking his back foot and going back, forward, back, forward, back, forward, or even rocking no, one back or anything. Step, right. It's just one back step and go, which is a lot more, I got to feel out this ground. And who knows, maybe it's something that he started. And ultimately, I mean, to be honest with you, there might be a chance that he wants to kick it. You know, obviously he's rolling right sure. now, but it, it might be something where he started tinkering with it. And it's helping him feel the back, the the ground more, uses backside, and he wants to get back to the fact of having his foot stationary because you think that it would impact his timing, and maybe it did when he first started it. But um, so just from the side angles I've seen, I I imagine it's more of just being able to engage the ground better and be more of an efficient mover and, and utilize that backside a little bit more, but. You know, it could be. Um, I'd have to see a front angle better of a timing thing, but it's it's a very sudden movement to be considered a timing mechanism for me. Well, and I also think that it would be tough because it's such. A, it is even though it's a, a subtle movement, it's still somewhat pronounced in the sense yes. that he could be susceptible to to guys doing different things. Right? You think about. You know, Nestor Cortez might be a nightmare matchup for him right now, right? Darvish Just because, if, too. Yeah. right, right. If you start to like, if he, if he's taking that back step and one of those guys hangs on him for a second or speeds up on him for a second, then that might throw timing. And now you are susceptible. You're opening it up. And just thinking yeah. about the song and dancing and the rhythm, right? Like you used to see Sheffield with the hands, right? And then mm-hmm. I, when I always remember and used to love the mimic when I was a kid with Scott Rowland, he would like be tapping his foot. His front foot would just be up and down, up and down, up and down. And then when he would, as you said, pitcher separates, he can separate. So to see Max Muncy kind of do this and, and again, the song and dance, and you're using Arenado to kind of get the timing down and boom. And it has, I mean, it's flipped It's it's flipped Muncy so far, and, and he's on fire. So to see him continue to do it um, is amazing. Um, and you, we kind of talk about staying in the hitting lane here is just – some of the timing things and just what people are starting to be able to match on the big league side, right? You see Muncie make these adjustments. You see them trying to make those adjustments with Gallo. And then um, we've had this conversation off, off, you know, off the, the podcast about kind of what Kevin Long starting to, to figure out was that he started in, in DC last year and he's carried it over to Philly with Schwarber and some of these guys of just being able to get the timing down, have the bat path, you know, stay flatter at the top of the zone to hit the high fastballs. Um, and that's worked for him as, and a lot of the guys in the Phillies lineup. Yeah. And, you know, K Long is, he kind of went through a lull, like kind of if you, if anybody knows K Long's career on the whole, um, he kind of had a stretch there where I, I don't want to say he was struggling with the times i think he was just the forgotten guy who's been around for so Mm -hmm. long right people forget he's he's who put daniel murphy on the map and daniel murphy played as an mvp candidate for for multiple years with the stick and that was a lot of what k long did and that was part of the reason daniel murphy who's a very 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 smart hitter and he's going to be a hitting coach one day was the reason k long came over the nats it was Daniel Murphy's 
vouching for K-Long. And then he was with the Nats for a while, obviously, over the time. And, you know, he's he's kind of, this is kind of the first thing that I imagine, you know, he was kind of the first with Daniel Murphy. And I really think that he's he's on to something. And I kind of pointed it out to you probably four weeks ago, three weeks ago yeah. at some point. Um, and it's something that Juan Soto does better than anybody. And when, when Juan Soto came up, he didn't exactly do it. Um, but basically, and, and obviously it's a little bit harder to, to explain than it is to show, but when you're looking at a swing and, and what Kyle Schwarber's doing, what Juan Soto does and what I believe Kevin Long, and, and I can kind of go into the background of, we'll start with how I kind of piece these things together. And it's not information that's out there to the world at this point in time. Kevin Long's never gone on a, on an interview and talked about it. Kyle Schwarber's, you know, kind of talked about little things like being on plane and, and staying tall and things like that over the last two years. But, you know, I started to notice when the Nationals in June last year, right, this is a lineup that had Kyle Schwarber, that had Juan Soto, that had all these guys when, when the stick'em um, crackdown kind of came yeah. into play. There was no offense that started to hit the ball better than the Nats offense. You saw Kyle Schwarber had 16 homers in a month, and he's kind of really never stopped since then. Juan Soto's obviously one of the best players in the world. And what I kind of started to notice is, you know, and I, I reached out to some some people I know that that are deep into the analytics and have access to to some analytics and MLB departments. And you know, there is a correlation between uh, vertical approach angle, which from a pitcher's standpoint of um, release point to where it crosses home plate, um, vertical approach angle, so high spin, um, high vertical movement, fastballs to the ability flat bat path, basically. So by stat cast measures, now they're starting to produce these things and, and a flat bat path is, is quantifiable, right? So, and a flat bat path to me, um, based off of looks and, and the information that we had at our levels is, is blast motion, early connection to connection and impact, right? So you want 90-90. So that basically means the bat in correlation to your body creates a 90 degree angle. Does that explain enough? Yes. Make sense yep. to you? Okay. Yep. Just making sure. I don't, I, you know, if I have to explain it a little better, but so that's when I started to realize that these guys with good early connection and good connection and impact started to handle the high vertically moving fastballs. And there's nobody in baseball who hits the high vertically moving fastball better than Juan Soto. Juan Soto. Yep. And I started to piece that together and, and look at video. And what you notice is there's two separate swings that Juan Soto will take. And this is what makes him so special and so unique is there's the high fastball. Go look at Justin Verlander in the World Series. Go look at Garrett Cole in the World Series and his ability to keep his top half upright. And all he does is flat bat path at shoulder height is pretty much the way I would describe it. And matching plane comes from side bend, which is pretty much your angle in comparison of your legs to your upper half. So it's the, the angle at which your hip bends. And every swing is the same, right? So if Juan Soto stands up straight, he would swing at his neck and it would be flat. If he bent completely over, he would still swing at his neck, but it would be able to match the plane of basically like hitting a golf ball off a tee. 
Are you keeping track right? Am I am I not losing? Yeah, so you? I guess it's all making sense. But no, no, no. I got you. So I guess my question to you then is is I don't want you to lose your train of thought there. But so how much then when we're talking about the swing? How much are we talking about just losing our hands in the swing? Like how much does the hands play into that? Right. So I'm thinking about getting my bat into that position and staying flat through it. Right. Is it then that I'm taking my hands to it? Like we've always heard everyone talk, take your hands to the baseball. Or is it more my hands are just kind of a vehicle to hold the bat and I'm just swinging everything torso out? In my experiences of working with hitters that that kind of needed this this training, a Kyle Schwarber like hitter, a Joey Gallo like hitter. What those guys have a tendency to do, and, and this is where the launch angle craze kind of ruins some hitters, is when you're trying to teach yourself how to hit the ball in the air, what do you immediately do? Swing up with your hands, right? And right. what that gives you a tendency to do is dump your barrel. So if your hands are the first thing that moves, you automatically barrel turn. So which for people that don't understand what barrel turns, and it basically means taking the knob of the bat and pointing it upwards, Right. So if you're still, if you're barrel turning, right? Some people do teach barrel turning and I do think there is a way to teach barrel turning and those are handsy hitters, right? Handsy hitters that kind of do that snap and barrel turn. Those guys really have to focus on staying upright. So they should never bend. They're still going to be a little bit exposed to the upper high fastball, Aaron Judge. And if you can't lay off that low slider. If you're trying to hit both, you'll struggle with it, which is why Max Scherzer can have so much success with that high fastball out extended for Aaron Judge because he does the snap, and obviously he's a mammoth of a human being, but he's so good right now at laying off that pitch above the zone that he can't hit. He's crushing the high and end fastball, but anything middle and outer third above the zone he's struggling with because he's handsy in that nature. So these guys that are matching side bend, you have to eliminate the hands. So to me, your, your guiders are, is your body, right? So if you're in the box and you recognize high fastball, you don't take your hands to the high fastball. You stay upright. So your shoulders just stay square. Your shoulder, yep. Your shoulders stay square. You stay as tall as possible. And what people don't understand is you're naturally going to bend, right? Corey Seager hit a home run. He hit a, he hit a ball off his shoelaces, which he's, he is your, if I could paint a picture of a hitter that I would want with the information and kind of knowledge that I've gained over the years, his ability to, to hold posture and his ability to stay flat and through baseballs and create backspin to the pole. Nobody does it better. Yesterday, he hit a ball off his shoestrings out. Guess what? He was bent almost completely. It was a completely different swing than what we saw in the home run derby where he was upright and tall and flat and just backspinning balls off the pole, right? So you actually eliminate your hands in that swing. For most guys that have attendance, if you're making this change and guys dump their barrel, right, and they're too active with their hands, you need to eliminate that and just let their body be their guidelines. So I guess then if in, in theory, then if, if we're getting guys to do this properly, so you talk about Soto, who obviously is probably the master at, at doing this. And then you, you look at a guy like Schwarber's essentially now we can cover the three planes that I kind of think about when we're going up down as pitchers, right? So we're talking about up, 
right above the belt, trying mm-hmm. to get guys to swing under the middle section yep. where we would typically like to stay out of, and then down below where guys would be yep. swinging over. This, if we're just taking and bending and the hands are going with us and we're going to get to the flat position and then I'm going to be able to just bend with it, now I can cover all three, right? Like you said, I can stay tall and I can keep the shoulders square on a, on a pitch up above the zone or at the letters middle it's you know a little bit it's right in that sweet spot why you have so much power because you can still have so you get the coil and you drive right why those pitches are the easiest to hit and then down you're talking about Seeger where he's just completely bent on that swing so now in theory we're covering every single plane that that we need which yes. then I would think like just you know the way my brain works from the other side of it is thinking about now how to attack these people that uh, would allow you to then potentially adjust quicker when you're fooled and maybe not swing and miss or have better contact on something that if I'm if I'm seeing a, a fastball overhand curveball guy, right? Yes. Like you th- if you think of like a Justin Verlander who's going to run the fastball up towards the top of the zone and then drop the the, the nasty breaker off of it. Okay, I'm seeing fastball. I'm going to stay tall. Now I'm just going to bend to get to the curveball, even if I'm a little bit out in front. Yep, exactly. And and that's kind of what creates the adjustability that you're able to do. Like the swing and they look different, but every swing is the same, right? As right. long as you're flat, your early connection's at 90 and your connection at impact is at 90, you're going to be okay. You know, and all that you're doing is your backside. You have to be able to recognize high fastball, stay tall. Oh, it's starting to break. Guess what? You're because what people don't understand is you naturally bend. If me or you got in the box right now and we recognize the change up low and away, guess what's our first inclination to do? Bend. bend. Right? Your top half starts to go over and you start to bend because you realize I I can't stand straight up and hit this ball. And hit it. You know, right. I don't have a yeah, I don't have a golf golf club and I'm not hitting this ball off the ground trying to stay tall. You, you naturally start to lean a little bit forward. So people don't even realize, like like Cody Bellinger's the prime example, that I don't think he realizes that how much he does bend, right? Because he works naturally uphill, right? He has an uppercut swing, and, and that's okay, and that's cool. But where have people started to expose him? Up in the zone, which when you're, you're working uppercut, when you're working uphill, you're always going to be susceptible to that pitch, right? You're always going like if you are a let's just say from an early connection to connection at impact, which again is the ratio of the bat in comparison to your body is one ten to one ten, right? You want it to be at a one to one. That's good. That's the most important thing is to have a one to one. So whatever you are early is what you want it to be at connection. At, at contact, sorry. And that's what in an ideal world. So Cody Bellinger's like a 120 to 120 at contact. But what does he do there from there? He bends, right? Because it's natural. Right. And that's why he crushes the low fastball. He crushes spin because he can catch it out in front and he's already bending. And it just runs into that bat bat. So if Cody Bellinger really tried to emphasize staying tall, like almost overemphasizing, and obviously you'd want him to flatten out, but because he's always going to, you know, a guy who comes in throwing spin up in the zone, he's going to struggle with, but, you know, being able to stay tall is what's going to give him a fighting chance on that pitch. All right. So if if you're talking about now being able to cover the planes up, down, right, thinking about trying to attack hitters off of that, 
I'm going to try and get you to now incorporate the hands, right? Because if, if we're swinging and we're going to try and get slotted into that one spot and you're just going to bend off of it, I can stay up on, upright on the high fastball and then I'm going to bend to get something straight down off of that. To me now, it's going to become even more important to, hey, can I run sink in? and be working back now on the other plane, right? Horizontally, we've been in the vertical spot now, right? Like why Soto has become one of the best hitters in baseball because every pitcher is attacking ver the verticals now, right? That vertical axis is what we're doing. We're running high spin fastballs up and we're breaking off of it. So now if, if I've now found a way to combat that as a hitter, from a pitching standpoint, we're gonna have to go to how much more important is like cutter sinker become. Right where now I can run something away to make you then have to reach last second. Okay, you've bent to it, good, but now I need I need to get you out of that slot, right? So that's what I'm going to try and do. That's where I need to mess up your timing. Yeah, and I, I think that's why you're starting to see guys like Kevin Gosman understand themselves a little better of how to use the sinker fastball and how to use the split finger, especially. That's why the split finger is becoming the pitch in baseball. You know, cough, cough, Houston Astros have six guys who throw splitters in their, right. in their bullpen um, is because it's able to work on that vertical plane, but also deviate two planes away from the barrel. Or the cutter is to work on that vertical plane, right? We can throw a cutter up in the zone, but guess what it does? It takes a left turn and busts you in because your body tells you stay tall, stay tall, stay tall, stay behind it. And then it moves at the last second and then you don't, you can't get the head out, which makes it that much harder to, to pull for with authority and pull for power. And that's what's kind of making, if you notice the best, the, the true elite fastballs right now, what does Garrett Cole do that's elite with this fastball? He's high vertical move, high horizontal move too. You see these right. guys that are able to get that vertical move up and away, and those are the guys that are starting to have a little bit more success because there are guys that are doing a better job of staying on plane, and it's guys that you know have a hard time. Like Soto has a harder time with those guys than the guys with just like the true backspin pitching machine fastball that comes out with that bottom wheel turn and, and just takes off like a rocket right at the top of the zone. Like all he has to do is, you know, obviously that's what makes it hard is you have to trick your mind to say, stay almost swing, shave the top half of the ball, which is, you know, something that a lot of these hitters, Alex Bregman talks about it on the whole um, shave the top half of the ball, which then makes it run into your barrel. But that's all he has to change. When you're deviating off of that, you know, you're getting a high vertical move and it's taking a right turn. That's hard to stay on and stay through. Yeah, and you think of Corbin Burns, right? He's been he's probably had the best fastball in baseball the last two years with the cutter. And you think like, okay, is this why? Because now he can. He it's it's you know it spins a ton. It has elite velocity on it, and now it's also moving completely on that horizontal plane, right? It's taking a left-hand turn coming from the right side. And it just – guys cannot – he's just never on guys' barrels. It's just – it's incredible to see. So it'll be interesting to see that. I mean, I think the work that Kevin Long's done with the – you know, as you said, you know, last year with the Nationals and then again with the Phillies, what he's done, and, and to see um, some of those adjustments. And again, watching Soto, when you talk about it that way of, of staying square, and that's that – that home run that everyone will remember from that 19 World Series off Verlander, right, where he keeps it fair and it's a fastball up. And it's just like, well, we've never seen – we haven't seen anyone clobber his fastball up in the zone like that before. It's insane. Yep. Um, so super deep stuff there. Um, 
unfortunately, we'll finish up here with the the news that I I don't really want to talk about, but we kind of have to talk about here. Um, right, Fernando Tatis uh, making his way into the Padres lineup for the first time this year after the offseason non-baseball related injury that had kept him out. Um, he was in his second week playing in the minors on rehab assignment and he gets popped for PDs. Um, 80 game suspension. He'll obviously miss the rest of this year in the playoff run with the Padres and he'll be out for the start of next year too. Um, unfortunate news, something you don't want to see, something that's just so frustrating and annoying because it's just, it's just one of those, come on, man. Like, you got to be kidding me. Uh, and then to come out and, and I hate the, I hate the excuses. The excuses yeah. drive me nuts. It almost makes it worse to come out and say he thought he was taking an over the counter medication for skinny or t- tapeworm. Which is mm-hmm. like, and I saw someone who, who found the, the, um, tapeworm medicine they were trying to say he thought he was taking. Um, I'm not going to botch the names of these things here, but apparently it's like you would never, ever get these confused. One is like, is obviously an anabolic steroid that like someone mm-hmm. has to get you. And the other one is like, you could walk into your pharmacy and get like, no, you, you wouldn't mess this up ever. Um, and it's just, it's again, I, I really wish we didn't have to, like, I really don't even want to talk about it, but it's frustrating. It's annoying. And it's just so like good for you, man. And I think he's lost a lot of his goodwill. I mean, this is a guy that, Baseball was trying to bill as the next great player, right? Like the new face of Major League Baseball. He Fernando Mania last year. He was taken over, and it was just like it was awesome. It was fun to watch. I enjoyed it. But then to have the the you know the off off the field injury in the off season, the non baseball related injury in the off season, to then follow it up with you're about to join into the the playoff race. And at this time of year, when, you know, your team needs you, they clearly need you. They made the moves. They're going all in. Part of that was like, we're going to be able to have Soto Machado and Tatis in the same lineup. And now you, you don't get to help them. And some of the, the comments from the San Diego clubhouse of guys, just like at some point, you, you know, you got to like, are, are you with us? Or are you not? Um, I think that was Clevenger who said it. He seemed to have the most pointed words about it. But everybody kind of commented in it. Not a lot of guys sticking up for him. Soto was kind of the most diplomatic, which makes sense. He's been there two weeks. I mean, what's Soto going to say? You know what I mean? Like, of course, they're going to ask him because he's a superstar and they want Soto's thoughts on it. But Juan Soto's like, I'm the new guy here. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, you know, like Machado, who's been his boy and who's really been a good leader for him, kind of was just like, yeah, well, whatever. We've gotten to this point without him, so we're just going to keep moving forward. Yeah, that's that kind of says a lot when your when your teammates are kind of looking at you. It kind of shows the immaturity that that he must have shown behind closed doors, right? And and that's not me taking a shot at Fernando Tatis because I don't know him. I've never spent an, a minute with him. I've never been in the clubhouse with him. But that that kind of tells you everything you need to know about. The frustration that's built up, you know, with the the motorcycle injury is one thing, and and being able to to get through that right with with the team, and and then being able to you know kind of tread water here and wait for their superstar. I mean, this is a guy who had forty two home runs in one hundred thirty two and one hundred thirty games last year with twenty five stolen bases. Like he's a superstar, right? Like he people talk about Manny Machado being an MVP candidate and. 
you know, Jake Cronenworth's a good player and, you know, everything that that team has to offer. And obviously Juan Soto there, but like Fernando Tatis is, is a guy that is a special talent and, and to be able to miss him up to this point is frustrating because of a motorcycle injury. I mean, this isn't Aaron Boone blowing his ACL and, you know, them going to get a rod and, and it's right. all fine. This is, Fernando Tatis, who you've given $340 million for 10 years to be the face of your franchise, to go do that and then to turn around and then get busted for steroids. And, and this kind of brings me to another point is, you know, I, 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 I kind of know, like, I kind of understand, you know, drug test and there's a lot of things that go, go on behind closed doors, right? That, that people don't, don't realize. I mean, it happens in college athletics. It happens in professional sports and, you know, being drug tested and, and whatnot. But I just have a hard time sitting there thinking that like either it's more well known that people use steroids in the MLB or he's, that like you, there's nobody that genuine does do people actually think they can get away with it is what my ultimate point is like do you really think Pete, Fernando Tatis thought he could get away with this and thought he would be able to just skate by a drug test like I, I don't know again I don't know how many drug tests they get I don't know if like because that brings me to the point of like is there more people taking ster- like is it more acceptable to take steroids in the big leagues than we know as outsiders is it like pot in college sports where it's like, oh, well, everybody does it. Nobody gets popped for it. You know what I'm saying? Like in the SEC, it's like, you know, these got more guys get pulled over with weed in their car than pos- test positive on a drug test in the SEC in the month of August every year. And it's like, and then you turn around and it's like, oh, well, nobody came up on a drug test. And then you talk about like this in Fernando Tatis situation. It's just weird. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I just, I think there's, <clears throat> sorry, I think there's levels to it just like anything. Um, I think it's obviously not like the early 2000s where it was like you were the odd man out if you weren't doing it. But I'm sure, I mean, there's always going to be people looking for advantage, right? We just, you brought it up earlier in the show and we just went through last year talking about, you know, spider tack, the pitchers using spider tack, right? Guys are always going to be looking for advantage. So yeah, I would, I would venture to say there are more people than the public wants to know or think about that are using things. And I also don't think it's the, the straight up anabolic, Arnold Schwarzenegger steroids of the past, right? The body bodybuilding steroids that the guys like Bonds and stuff are taking. You know, we have all kinds of different supplements now, the stuff that Tatis is taking in the SARMs and everything that you see guys taking that aren't as severe. But I'm, I'm yes, I definitely think that there's people doing it. And I think guys are dense enough to think they're not going to get t- caught. For sure, because yeah. I'm sure they know people who haven't gotten caught. And I'm sure they probably also think, well, maybe this won't even show up on the drug test because it's not the anabolic, you know, stuff yeah. that Balco was handing out. So I think that it's a little bit of that. And I think, you know, it definitely also when you talk about a young player like that, like somebody's somebody in his corner is is, is giving him some bad advice, whether it's a trainer off the field or, or something. Right. And I don't want to make this comparison because this is completely out of left field. But his father was also popped for steroids. Right. So like. It's like, I think it's more prevalent than we see. I also think that mm-hmm. some of these places that these guys are at in the off season, it's way more prevalent, especially if you're unfortunately talking about guys who are in other countries, you know, surrounded in where, you know, how people are feeding their families, getting over here and making a major league roster. 
and and I think it's just something that's unfortunate. I don't think it's something that you're ever going to get out of the game. I mean, you still see it in the NFL. Right? There are guys in the NFL who are getting popped for it all the time. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely think that it's it's just not talked about as much because it was such a black eye for baseball, so it's not going to be reported as much. But I definitely, definitely think that there's more people than we think that are that are using things we shouldn't. Because whenever you have competitions of any kind, you're going to have people who are trying to get a leg up one way or another, right? Everyone's going to be sign stealing, spider tax, steroids, however you want to go down that road. And unfortunately in sports, it's the way it is. Tom Brady's deflating footballs, Bill Belichick's filming walkthroughs, right? Um, College coaches are, are, you know, Jeremy Pruitt's handing kids cash in McDonald's bags at Tennessee to get recruits. Whenever there's competition and competing in any sport, UNC has has a fake major made up for their basketball players. It's there's going to be cheating, right? Unfortunately, yeah. guys are going to be looking, guys or gals are going to be looking to get a leg up one way or another, um, and that's just unfortunate. I just think it sucks when it's a guy like Tatis. Yeah, you know. Sucks it's, when it's anyone, but yeah. when it's a guy like Tatis, it's just like cool. Like, like you said, you're in the year two of a, a 340 million dollar contract. You get on a motorcycle this off season. You get yourself hurt. You miss the majority of the season. They're in the middle of a playoff chase. They're trying to, you know, overcome the Dodgers, who are the best team in baseball. And you're counting on this guy to be the best player in the face of the franchise, and he gets bopped for this. And and to the point you made, I definitely think. Just by reading the comments from the Padres players, there was definitely some immaturity there, some underlying immaturity that we didn't know about. And this is a gut check time for Fernando Tatis. You can come back for this from this, right? No one talks about Starling Marte, who got suspended for how many games for PEDs, right? No one talks about Robinson Cano, really. Now, it was the back half of Cano's career, so he wasn't as good before. But still, like you can come back from this. But you better first – like, he's got a long, long way to go in this offseason. Hopefully, you would like to see him use this time to connect with his teammates and grow up a little bit and figure it out and come back and be the guy that he's getting paid to be. Yeah, Or it will be a killer for that organization. Killer. If I mean, he does they, they tied up way too much. I mean, there, there's some there's some scumbag organization who will take a take a shot on a guy that might burn a couple bridges on his way out. Like like you said, I mean, competition. Like the Padres, when he's back being the best player that he was and one of the best players in baseball, we won't care. Will, they won't even care. And, and that's it's kind of one of the the sad truths about sports and, and like you said the co- the competitive side I think is the reason why we're sitting here podcasting at 10:30 in August and not coaching college baseball anymore too. Um you you start to see that that competition brings out the worst in people and you know th- not to defend Fernando Tatis cuz he's a special talent but I remember I forget who it was on MLB Network but it was kind of one of those guys who played in the steroid era who didn't have as much success as some, some of the guys who, who took steroids. Um, and when Robinson Cano got bopped, I remember watching and, and him talking about going on a very passionate and long rant about how if you told me that I was going to make life changing money and all I had to do was take these steroids, I would do it. You know, life changing right. money for my family, especially for, you know, Fernando Tatis's family doesn't need money, right? His dad was a big leaguer. His dad made ample amounts of dollars and, 
you know, so there's, there's no excuse for that. But for these guys like, like Juan Soto, like Robinson Cano, like, like, you know, Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies and, and people want to, you know, that's a conversation for another day, but the Braves kind of taking advantage of those guys at the infancy of their career and, and signing them to, to really team friendly deals to kind of, because of that, you know, whether that was their motivation or not, but those deals are, are cheap because it's life-changing money. A lot of these guys that come from that upbringing of where it's baseball or die or, or baseball or driving a taxi and, you know, it's the steroids are very, very easy to take at that point, you know? Right. And like, like I said, that's no excuse for Fernando Tatis. It's no excuse for Robinson Cano late in his career. But when you start to talk about the the pressure that these guys have to make it, you know, these guys that's families are relying on them sending some money back and making life changing money, you can kind of start to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, and yeah, it's an, it's unfortunate. You you can understand it, and it's just that moral question of what you're going to do. And and like you said, I'm sure the Padres and their, and their fans will forget about it if he comes back next year and. It all will be forgotten, but the guys in the locker room won't forget. And that's yeah. where he's going to have to start. He's like, he's going to have to win back the guys in the locker room, get their support, and then he can go from there. And, you know, you just hope for baseball and for the Padres and for us and Fernando Tatis that he moves on from this and he comes back next year and um, kind of cleans up his name and, and, and grows up a little bit. And, you know, we'll see. It's 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 news that you don't want to hear over the weekend, and especially this time of year when there's so much more fun stuff to be talking about. And it would have been excited to see Tatis re-entered into their lineup to to go on this run with them, and and that's going to hurt them in in the end. But they've gotten to this point without him, so we'll see. Um, that'll do it for us. Another episode. Make sure you subscribe, share. Follow, like, do all those good things. We'll be back later this week to talk a weekend preview and the things we've seen at the start of this week.